Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Professor Seeger from Salem University to talk about plague and talk about pandemics. Uh, and specifically, we're going to be probably talking a lot more about the Black Death episode. Um, I'm a former student of Professor Seeger, and you know she was uh, famous for teaching European history, medieval history, and courses on witchcraft. And so I thought it'd be great to bring her on and see if she could help illuminate the topic of plague because of what's going on in the world today. So, Professor Seeger, thank you for coming in. I don't know if, if I missed anything. Feel free to fill in any blanks and tell people more about yourself. Brandon, I'm happy to, to join you and, and your audience. It'll be fun. So, so why don't you tell people what, what, what you teach? Like, what, what are your areas of interest in history before we get into questions I, about plague? My, my PhD is in European history in the um, late medieval period, the 15th and 16th centuries. And uh, I was hired at, at Salem State to teach both medieval and early modern European history. So that's everything from the dissolution of the Roman Empire to the French Revolution. It's a huge period, and it definitely encompasses several plagues. <laughs> Which I'm sure we'll get into. Why don't... What what uh, so why don't we talk about plague in general? Because I think plague people use plague as a synonym for just any disease, I know. but it really means something kind of specific. So do you want to talk about what it means first? Sure. Um, well, the way that historians use plague is in specific reference to the bubonic plague, and there have been three big outbreaks, big pandemics of bubonic plague in world history. So we, we refer to them, world historians in particular, because another pet peeve of historians is that uh, the plague is only referenced uh, to European history, but actually all of these pandemics were global. So we have three kind of global pandemics of plague. The first one was in um, the sixth century. And it devastated much of the Byzantine Empire in the Middle East and uh, Western Europe. And then the second pandemic was um, coincidental to what we call the Black Death, the 14th century plague. But the Black Death actually specifically was the first outbreak of that pandemic, and it lasted from the 14th century, and we'd have repeated outbreaks all the way into the early 18th century. So that's the second pandemic. And the third pandemic happened in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries, and that's when scientists and physicians studied the plague and figured out exactly what it was scientifically. So um, a lot of what we know scientifically about plague comes from all the analysis of, of the third pandemic, particularly in the 1920s. And um, a, a Russian doctor named Alexander Yertsin isolated the particular bacterium that is the bubonic plague. And so it is called after him, Arsenia pestis, and that is bubonic plague. Uh, so historians don't use the phrase Black Death as just a synonym for plague. The Black Death refers to very specific outbreak from 1347 to 1352 in Europe, which sort of kicked off the second pandemic in Europe. 
and also really devastated Europe. Europe was much harder hit than anywhere else in the world. And so that's been a major problem and a major source of curiosity for historians just to figure out why Europe was hit so hard. We have about between 30 and 50% of the European population died in five years, between 1347 and 1352. Well, um, what was the percentage again? I, I missed that. It's between 30 and 50% of the European population died between 1347 and 1352. And also, it's the way that Europeans referenced what was happening to them. It was just so devastating, whereas people in other areas of the world, like I say in my class, mm -hmm. In the Middle East, the same pandemic was called the 17th plague, whereas in Europe, it was it was the Black Death. It was the Black Death. They use that phrase, too. Did, did it hit Europe harder or were, the, were these other places, did they manage it differently or was it bad yeah. just across the board? That's a great question. That is a great question. And that's and historians have been trying to figure out exactly why. And part there's a lot of answers to that question. I think I think the major answer is that Europeans were a little bit more removed from the rest of Eurasia. So they didn't really have um, a, a, a strong defense, a biological defense system mm. to this plague. Whereas the rest of Eurasia was much more in contact with each other. So they'd been trading goods and they'd been trading germs for centuries. But Europeans had just sort of recently entered this trading zone. So they didn't have immunity. So it's kind of like the Amerindians. Okay, in the 16th century, I had no immunity to European and old world germs. It's the same to a, to a lesser extent uh, with Europe. Uh, but the other answer to your question um, is that it has come out more recently in research, I'd say over the last 20 years or so, and, and also including not just historical research, but biological research. We've been able to do DNA testing on remains. And it's now we have a theory that what Europeans call the Black Death and what we call the Black Death was actually maybe a, a perfect storm, a combination of three different strains of plague, not just bubonic plague, which is the more common plague that was isolated in the 1920s, but also pneumonic and septicemic plague. And pneumonic and septicemic plagues are much more rare and they are contagious. Uh, bubonic plague is not strictly contagious. It's spread by fleas and rats. It's not spread person-to-person -person contact. Mm. It appears contagious to most people at the time, but it wasn't. So we kind of think that what happened in Europe was this perfect storm of three plague strains, and that's why the mortality yeah. was so bad. Now, were the different strains transmitted differently? Like, would pneumonic plague have been yes. transmitted through the air yeah. and stuff like that? Yeah. The pneumonic and septicemic are contagious just person-to-person, -person. just hand-to-hand, -hand, the way we're, you know, transmitting coronavirus right now. No. That that would have led to much more contagion. Now, septicemic. That sounds awful. So, what what is septicemic plague? Like, because I get I get what pneumonic plague probably is. That's probably a respiratory illness. But this sounds like like blood infection. Is that, am I no, am I here? All respiratory. They oh, they're are, okay. I don't. I can't, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a physician. I can't give you all the medical nuances. Mm. I, I can only tell you that, um, that the other two more rare plagues are, are contagious. Okay. Yeah. But, but there was a little, I had a professor 
um, in, um, in, in graduate school, Sam Kung, who's like the expert on the, on the Black Death. And he was even doubtful that there was even bubonic plague in 14th century Europe. He, he because what bothered him and what bothers other people is there was no, in our, um, in our historical record, when Europeans are writing about the coming of the Black Death in 1348, 1349, they never mention rats. Whereas the other, the other sources in the Middle East along the Silk Road, they always start their descriptions of when the plague is coming with, with an episodic. An episodic is a massive die-off of an animal. And, you know, so you would see fields of dead rats. And all those rats were the carriers of the flea that carried the plague. And when the rat died, the flea had to jump on to another host because the flea needs a host and thus would transfer the plague from rat to human being. But the European sources never mention rats. They mention rats in the 17th century. They don't mention rats in the 14th century. So that's curious to us. Um, I kind of think personally it's because Europe was a lot dirtier and more congested in the areas and just dirtier than the Middle East. But it also kind of supports that view that perhaps there were different strains that combined to create this really lethal Black Death. So, but but he he doesn't think that it was the uh, the bubonic form of it. Is what, he, but he, I haven't talked to him for a while, Brendan, mm-hmm. but, you know, he was the big doubter. Okay. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point because it's not like, number, it's we can't send medical teams back to the Middle Ages to analyze this stuff, so we only... But we, can't, but we can analyze the remains, and that's being done. And so how accurate how accurate is that? Like what are they what are they what are they able to know scientifically with those kind of things? It's DNA. It's DNA analysis. And and they can and so far they have isolated only uh, bubonic plague in the remains. The remains there's these huge actually I was horrified the other day when I was looking at the news and they were burying those bodies in New York City. I don't know if you saw it. And oh yeah, I did, I did see that. Yeah. It just reminded me. It reminded me horribly. I was horrified. It reminded me of of these huge plague pits that would be you know outside of London, outside of the city where they would just sort of put all the bodies together in these large trenches and you know that was something new people were actually more horrified by that than they were actually dying of the plague because you know burial was supposed to be a closing of life yeah. a nice ceremony and just to have this kind of in, in, ignoble end of your life like being treated like an animal was horrifying to people i think i think that's something a lot of people today can really understand because like you see that you that's where your mind goes and i was i was looking at something about that in in england did they they used to seal those pits too right like they would put a layer of something on top of them so that when they dig them up there are these thick layers of material between them i think Yes, and they wrap they wrap the bodies in shrouds. They they didn't just you know heap them in. You mm. have you know the horrible images in your head. But it was I'm, a, I'm a, picturing a, Mozart in yeah. Amadeus when they just dump them into the the pile of. I think a little bit more care <laughs> than that. I mean, we have some evidence in England, uh, for instance, of people separating um, the bodies by by gender, by age. We have some evidence of them putting charcoal in the mouths of the bodies so that they, you know, would be kind of stored till that time that they could be buried respectfully. So people were trying, but it was just devastating. I mean, it's so many bodies, so much. Now, 
I remember in your class you mentioning the buboes. I think they were called buboes. The, the, yeah. Can you describe some of the symptomology of, of plague? Sure. Sure, a, a bubo. So the the name bubonic plague is is the, you know the vernacular name comes from bubos, which is just a Latin word that means bump. Okay, so the most visible symptom of the plague was when you had a growth, a kind of uh, I don't know how big, maybe tangerine, maybe orange sized growth um, that would appear near a gland, and that's the symptom. Okay, of the black death. Once you get that growth in a glandular area, your your whole uh, body starts to shut down. It really attacks the nervous system, and your body shuts down. It makes for a terrible death. And I think the word blackness is also coming from the fact that as your extremities would kind of die off, they would turn black where you would still be alive. Your heart would be beating, and your whole body would be shutting down around you. But I really want to... You know, before we started taping, Brandon, we were talking about medieval folklore. Uh-huh. 99% of the images that you see on the Internet of the Black Death, I have air quotes here now, <laughs> are not a Black Death. They are of uh, smallpox, okay, or, or, or something else. Okay. We don't have any real, there's maybe one realistic illustration of the Black Death that I've seen on the Internet. Really? Um, yeah, just all these sites will take like any bumpy person. A <laughs> 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 <I'm> black death. <laughs> it's usually smallpox, which was very virile and horrible as well. So that's pretty much what you're seeing. Okay. Temporary images. And it wouldn't be lots of bumps. I know in class, I must have showed you that standard image of these people lying here with bumps all over their body. It'd be one bump. One big bump. One, so it's like gland. Is, is the bump from the gland itself? Like the gland is swelling? Or? Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay, yeah, I can I can see that. I can picture that. <laughs> now, now, what about... Okay, so with antibiotics... Plague is fairly manageable, is my understanding. Yes, yes. It's not a problem now. No. But in fact, I went camping once, and they had bubonic plague at the campground. Yeah. I remember. Um, Every student that I've ever had, and you know me, I've been teaching for what twenty-five years now. Whenever there's an outbreak of bubonic plague, I hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but without antibiotics, what was? Do we know what the fatality rate was for these people? Like, if you got it, were you doomed, or could you recover from it? No, that. Is, that's a great question, and um, that's the other kind of curious thing about about the Black Death, that episode we call the Black Death, because some people would recover, and some people wouldn't, and some people would take longer to die, and some people would die like overnight. So it's not just it's, there's a diff, competitive symptomology. So we're we're kind of sorting that out. It's it is possible to recover. Yes, I think that the mortality was was great. That's why you have so much. At least a third, between a third and half of the population of Europe died. So that's very high mortality. I mean, half is. In, I mean, that's unbelievable. Really, it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. No, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. They had never had. They had no precedent for it. It it, it changed Europe in myriad ways because it was so unprecedented in their experience. Now, was their reaction in any way reminiscent of ours, or is was they doing no, things totally differently? Because they are people of faith, and we are not. You know, so they their first 
their first reaction is God is punishing us for our sins. We are sinful and that's why we're being punished. And so that's why I think that black death is even more traumatic because mm. it's not just a physical crisis. It's a spiritual crisis. You're dying and you're feeling guilty for dying. So they, um, I mean, in the short term, I always like to separate when I, I talk about this in my class and when we read about it in my class, I like to separate the short term from the long term reaction because short term gets a little hysterical the way that that we have been well i don't think we've been too hysterical but um it's, it's emotional there's an emotional yeah, yeah, intensity yeah. to it there was definitely scapegoating there was attacking <clears throat> jewish populations and scapegoating and blaming them um there was self-flagellation movements there, there was some crazy things that went on right in the middle like 1349 1350 1351 but the long-term reaction was was more muted it's just i think it was more social and economic. I mean, the whole economy shut down. I mean, we're having an economic crisis right now, but it's not going to last for 80 years. Yeah. That's, yeah. What, <laughs> that's what happened. They, so they had 80 economy. years of economic yeah, catastrophe? Yeah, they lost their, their manpower, you know, and everything changed uh, economically and socially. In some ways, it was an opportunity for people at the bottom of society to have kind of more opportunity because so many people had died. Uh, but in other ways, it was just uh, very, very um, dislocating and uh, and problematical. But there was any time that you have, uh, uh, I mean, there's this kind of basic economic principle that I think is is quite interesting that was set in motion at this time. You know, you have two components of of production. You have capital and you have labor, and if you're being economically smart, if your labor costs grow too expensive, then you will substitute capital, okay? And if you're substituting capital, and there's plenty of capital in post-Black Death Europe, there's very little laborers. So if you substitute capital, what you're gonna come up with is labor-saving devices, and that's technology. And so, so it drove well, innovation, like? Yes. Yes. So in, so in some ways, it became more more innovative, to use your word, more technological. My favorite example of this is shipping. Uh, the most common uh, ship going into the 14th century was a galley, which is a ship that is rowed with oarsmen. And the, they made these big Venetian galleys in Venice and they would they would go all over the Mediterranean they would even go out into they're not really an ocean big ocean going ship yeah. so they wouldn't go well out into the Atlantic. Those, those are like Roman style ships right like yeah, yeah like yeah so they're still using really old style boats yeah. at this point but you know after the black day you can't find 200 guys to be oarsmen you know, in 1370, you can't. So they have to substitute capital and design and innovation, and they come up with a ship that is propelled by wind, a much more of a sailing ship. Mm. And if they had not come up with that type of a ship, then, you know, none of the geographical discoveries that happened in the next century would have been possible because the galley was not going to take anyone across the Atlantic Ocean. And is there, I mean, obviously rowing 
is there a specific reason why wind power is better for crossing an ocean versus rolling? Well, the Atlantic is very windy and, you know, it has very strong currents. You need to be upper, you need to be, have a deeper draft. Mm-hmm. These, um, these galleys didn't have a deep draft. They were cargo ships, essentially, and they're not sailing ships. They're not for navigation. And so you need, you need to be able to harness the wind and you need to be solidly in the ocean with your deeper draft. And that was the ship design of you get a deeper draft to support the sails up above. And so that is created the ship of the 15th century, which is the ocean going ship. And so also, did it have political, like I've heard, and I don't know how true this is, that it, that it had, it, it helped us advance politically as well in a lot of ways. Uh, is that is that true or is that not the case? Well, I mean, like things like, um, like the, the political revolutions that happened in England and stuff and the monarchy becoming less powerful, things like that. Were, were uh, those, were those yeah. linked to the plague or is that just people talking and making? That's just people. Okay, okay. <laughs> There were popular revolts. Uh-huh. There really were because these these laborers are like, hey, they have a, a a big sense that they have more bargaining position, right? Mm-hmm. All the survivors, so they revolt. But there, those those revolts were put down pretty hard. Okay, okay. So this is not it's not a great time of liberation. Uh-huh. I think it's a time of more opportunity. But it's not a time of great liberation. Okay, so we've at least eliminated one myth okay. that seems to be out there. Because <laughs> that's what I've seen a lot on the internet. Um, the other but, thing I've seen on the internet is, oh, the Black Death was a good thing the Renaissance happened right after. As if no one suffered in the interim. <laughs> well, also, did it, it, it's not like there was a cause and effect, right? Like the... The Renaissance was the, I, I mean, I, I don't remember entirely. I, I remember taking your class on the Renaissance, yeah. but I remember other things like the fall of Constantinople being a factor and, you know, the collapse of the, the, the Byzantine Empire, or not the Byzantine, the, uh, the collapse of, uh, of the, yeah. Um, and so, you know, all of, the, all of those minds moving into Europe is, is, was something that was, was, was responsible for it. But, well, I guess it depends on where, I mean, the Renaissance is kind of a very flexible thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to pin down. If you're looking at it culturally, certainly what you, what you just said is very important. But um, economically, you do have this concentration of wealth among the people that among a smaller percentage of the population, and um, in Italy, which was the hardest hit by far of Europe. I mean, you have like seventy-five percent of the population dying in Florence, which is the center of the Renaissance. So, and 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 then the economy is kind of dead. No one really knows what to do. So there's this. A theory called uh, from a very prominent uh, late medieval economic historian named David Hurley, which is called Hard Times and Investment in Culture. If you don't have, you have all this money, you have no productive uh, investment opportunities, so you just buy stuff, you know? And the Renaissance is acquisitive, it's very acquisitive okay. movement. You just buy this stuff. So, you know, you can make nice arguments, but. To say that, oh, you know, 35 million people died and then we had the Renaissance. Isn't that great? That's just kind of a, a non-humanistic Yeah, it, it ignores it ignores the cost. The, <laughs> you know? the, well, also the fact that, you know, when you say that, you're kind of thinking if it happened today and you're not 
you're not thinking, well, I might be one of those people that perishes in that. It's not, it's not, it's it's just a a weird way of looking at human civilization. So I don't, I don't really like that. (laughs) What about some other myths around the black? There must be a lot that you see floating around, especially now. Myths. Myths about the plague. Well, I mean, you know how, I mean, you've taken medieval, you've studied the medieval period. You know, people, I just, just what I was saying about the Renaissance, I don't think people are very respectful towards medieval people. I think we look down upon them as people who are superstitious and silly. And we look on, we look down upon them as being governed by faith and not reason, mm-hmm. um, and that's to you know really uh, generalize far too much. There, there, they really didn't understand it. There were some people that tried to understand it. Uh, we have a lot of uh, medical doctors who espouse you know what to us look like ridiculous medical theories about the alignment of the stars. But we have other doctors going out there and trying to sort of be empirical and, and figure out what's going on and treatment. So I, I just don't like, you know, popular culture being so dismissive of medieval people. I mean, they're people like us. Well, um, well, and how would you describe, cause I mean, I guess it was different, obviously, like they had different paradigm that they were operating yeah. under, mm-hmm. but how would you describe that paradigm in a way that doesn't do that? Like what would, what would your characterization of the medieval mindset be? Well, they are people of faith mm-hmm. and I think that's why we don't understand them because we don't live. I mean, even if we were, even if you or me or anyone that's listening right now is considers themselves a religious person, we can't begin to approach their religiosity. Okay. Far more, far more religious than us. So they are different than us. And in that sense, I think they're the same as us in terms of their emotions and their, you know, experience, but their faith makes us, makes them different. And, um, so it kind of makes them look a little passive because, oh, this is the will of God, you know, so we're not going to do anything about it. But they, they weren't passive. They were trying to understand. They were they were beginning to understand that God had equipped them with free will and the ability to understand the world around them. And so they're trying to do that. And uh, so I, I just don't. I just don't like to see these perceptions of them sort of taking it like sheep, and mm. just, you know, in that passive way. Well, do you think that's like how I guess movies would be a big part of that and, yeah. you know, just popular culture in general? Like, do you are there are there ways that the plague is handled in, in film and in in books and stuff that you think is not not particularly accurate? Well, I don't think any of it's accurate, but. You know, I, I, I have to work with it. You know, when you teach medieval history, any medieval professor will, will tell you this. You have to work with it because it's so much, particularly mm. film. I mean, every time you were there, if I bring up the Black Death or the, you know, Monty Python is <laughs> come up all the time. <laughs> I, yeah, I might have been responsible for one or two of those. <laughs> So, excuse me. So, am I going to just say, no, you can't talk about Monty Python? No, I'm going to have to work with Monty Python, aren't I? But you also brought up examples of, like, I remember you had a picture of um, Elizabeth, the movie, uh, in your office. Yeah, when you you were a student. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was because you said the costumes were act. There was something about it that you said was 
authentic in some way. I can't remember. Um, it was. I think the costumes are good, but the rest of that movie is just a, a hot mess. I mean, it's horrible. Oh, okay. See, I didn't. I didn't realize that. So, <laughs> I mean, the plot is wrong. The interiors are wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, it must have been the costumes. I'm glad you remembered that. I think that was the only thing I could find. I mean, is, is there is there a medieval movie that you like? Is there a movie set in the Middle Ages that that you think is accurate? in a way that you know you're not bothered by you're not bothered by the the lack of accuracy that it also has yes actually one of my favorite movies it's not at all accurate it's ridiculously inaccurate but it's a medieval movie and i still think it's really good i think it captures the age and that's and now i'm i'm forgetting the name of it now that i'm on the spot it happens to be all the time and i talk about movies <laughs> every day on this podcast so the uh, last night, the first night, the, the oh, um, oh, the comedy, the yes. uh, the one that's based on like um, Chaucer, right? The yes, yes, yes. Now I'm Blake. I know which one you mean. It's got the guy uh, Heath Ledger in it, and yes. yep. That. I think it's called First Night, isn't it? Oh my. With with a K N I G I. I can. That's okay. No, we can. We can. <laughs> It's not like we botched medieval history. We forgot a movie, which is fine, I think. Um, but um, I love that movie. I'm looking up on my phone as I'm here. Um, because it's, I mean, obviously it's a comedy. It's silly. I mean, it's, it's totally anachronistic. But I think the spirit of that movie is there. The spirit of the late Middle Ages is in that movie. You, know, you, know, you notice he is a... You know, he's not coming from an old aristic family. He's trying to fake it as a knight. That's what was happening then in the 15th century. You have people actually moving up. We have social mobility. You never have social mobility. And it's because of the, the demographic crisis. No question about it. And um, so I really like the uh, A Knight's Tale. A Knight's Tale. Okay. I really like the spirit of that movie. I show it and my students are like, what is she showing this movie to? It has nothing to do with so." crazy and i'm like no no no! i want you to get the whole spirit of this movie well <laughs> it's funny the first time i saw that movie i had a hard time getting past them using like queen music and stuff but then yeah. the more i watched it the more i thought that that all kind of made sense in a weird way exactly and exactly that is it that is my favorite medieval movie a knight's tale i can't believe it jumped right out of my mind but that's it <laughs> it's, it it, ha it happens all. I don't know why. Just when you need information like that, it just kind of evaporates. But uh, now, what were some of the? Um, uh, I, I was the first plague that you mentioned. The very first one was that the plague of Justinian. Exactly. And what impact did that have, actually? Because I, I I want to talk more about the Black Death, but I just was curious what what it's kind of outside of my period. Brendan, so I'm not as okay on that, but um, Justinian, as you as you may recall, I don't know how much ancient history you took, but Justinian um, was really wanted to. He's he's ruling um, in what we call the Byzantine Empire, but he really wanted to reunite and reconquer the whole Western Empire, bring Rome back together as a whole entity, and that. That plague, and he was really getting ready to do that, but that plague uh, was a major obstacle to him realizing that goal. 
Well, so, um, so that's usually how that plague is expressed, and it really devastated Constantinople and the East much more than Western Europe. Well, one of the things—I mean, I, 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 ancient history was another area that I, I remember liking when I was in school, and one of the—but one of the things that always jumped out at me was you would have stuff like that happen, like that, or you'd have some some big emperor who gets like a little bug and dies the night before a battle, yeah. and just just the the way that you just realize how fragile humans are when you're what when you're reading history. Um, well, one thing I, I you're not the only one is who's who's called to sort of ask me a comment on these things and I, I love this kind of wake up moment that's going on where people are realizing that really disease has a much bigger impact on world history than than even war. You know, I mean, disease is always there. And when you go into the 19th century, the plague disappears. But then you get, you know, cholera and Mm. yellow fever and tuberculosis, which is called the white plague. And and then the big influenza of 1918. I mean, you know, that killed. God, we don't even have good. That that probably killed 50, at least 50 million people in the world. So, I mean, much more than World War One. So it's, um, you know, disease is just really a strong historical force. I wish we could um, integrate the study of disease more into the study of history. So history wasn't just, you know, about politics and war, but, you know, but looking at, at, at the, the, the integrated history of disease, I think would be a really good thing for us to do. Well, I think, I think there might be more of that now with, with everything that's going on. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> like the uh, the mayor of Salem called me up last week, two weeks ago, and she said, um, "Can you help? I, you know, I think Salem is in for a bad time, and I want to sort of look into history and see if we can, you know, inspire people by stories of resilience." And so we've a couple of historians here in Salem and the Peabody Essex Museum. We're kind of looking at the war, we're looking at the influence of epidemic, we're looking at the other epidemics and seeing how Salem handled these epidemics in the past. And there's definitely some interesting stories and in- inspiring stories that come from those. Well, I mean, that's definitely interesting. I, I think I tend to look at history a little more pessimistically, so I tend to focus on the bad things when I, yeah. when I look back at the history. But <laughs> only because it's more interesting. It's it's usually more exciting than than the the resilient stuff, but the resilient stuff's there too. So um, you're interested in you can look at the bad and then you look at how people react to the bad. That's that's doing history. Yeah. Study the bad, interesting stuff, but then you study the human reaction to the bad, interesting. Stuff. Well, well, also it's just as interesting. Well, the, the how I take consolation in it is I kind of realize my own insignificance in, right. you know what I mean? Because everybody, like, you you start to think, well, geez, if, you know, this farmer in the Middle Ages just, you know, up and died and nobody even, you know, remembered the person, you know, who am I to expect more? So yeah, no, That's what I did, too. I Whenever I, I'm feeling, like, totally sad and full of myself and dwelling on my own problems, I always read history because then I think, Wow, I'm just nothing. I'm a flea. I'm a speck. Yeah, there's there's something about. I don't know why it's comforting, but it is for yeah. some reason. <laughs> but what about uh, plague doctors? Because I see a lot of imagery around plague doctors now. Oh, whenever right. they do, that would be my number. 
one problem. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So all those plague doctors you see are not from the Black Death. Interesting. So where, where, what period are they from? They're from the 17th century. They're from the Great Plague of London in, in the 1660s. Okay, okay. They're all from, and yeah, again, historians don't use the word, so I'm using it. To, I, historians don't use the word Black Death as a synonym for plague. They use the word Black Death to refer only to the 14th century plague. So when I say those long-beaked uh, plague doctors are not from the period of the Black Death, I say I mean that they're not from the 14th century. They're okay. The late, the late 17th century, and no, that is oh my god on the, you know the media is just stupid about that. I mean I don't know how many times we have to tell them. It's the it's <laughs> it's, it's the, from the 14th century. It's so you know what it is. It's so visually compelling that yeah. it's it's impossible for them to not make use of it. I think, but but do you, yeah. do you know much? Is that outside of your area? Do you know much about? that sure yeah no i actually i'm writing a book about the 17th century right now so i i i, I know a lot about 17th century plague absolutely and what was the deal with those beaks and the well the... that's that comes actually the theory is there in the 14th century they just didn't have the outfits um the theory is that plague um is kind of spreading by what they call a miasma and it's a kind of a weird word m-i-a-s-m-a miasma it's like a fog, a fog of plague. And if you can't smell it, if you cover your face, so here's corollary to today. If you cover your face and your nose, you will be prevented. You will you will be protected from the plague. Okay. Which, which is okay. in the air. It's in the air. Okay. And um, so people would, doctors would wear those things and you have um, people walking around smelling. You're supposed to make little bags. This is what women would do. Rather than sewing masks like we're all sewing now, they would make little, they're called sweet bags. And you can still see some of them in like the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Museum of London. And they, there would just be a little cloth bag and in it you would put sweet, sweet smelling herbs. Okay, like a perfume satchel or something. Yeah, yeah, and like exactly. Um, or also a pomander. You know, remember pomander for Christmas where you take your like little orange and you put like cloves all around it? Yep. Yep. <laughs> so we have things like that. Um, so anything sweet smelling. So if you have to go downtown, if you have to go grocery shopping, you take your sweet bag or you take your pomander and you just hold it right up at your nose and you'll be okay. And that and the, and the beaks on those were filled with some kind of. Well, you're just protected, you know, you're okay. far away from um, from the air. And, yeah, so you okay. can get close to the body, but you are protected by your beak. And what about the evolution of medical knowledge? Like, that, like, that, like what, miasma came out of what set of ideas around medicine? That, that came out of the idea, well, see, that, I mean, medicine in the, um, in the medieval period and in the early modern period is, is based on Galen. Um, the, and the Greek physicians, and it's based on the four humors, okay? And so you have four humors. Your body is made up of four humors, okay? You have uh, blood, and you have phlegm, and you have black bile and yellow bile. Mm -hmm. and, that, and your body is made up of these four basic essential entities, and all illness was diagnosed by a, an imbalance, 
in, in the humors. When you were born, on the day you were born, which is why astrology was very integrated into medicine, on the day you were born, that determined what your particular complexion is. And complexion does not refer to your face. It refers to the your balance of humors. Like some people have a little bit more phlegm and a little less blood. Okay, some people, everyone has a unique complexion. And when you're ill, it's because things are out of whack because your your humors are out of balance. So that's that's essential medical theory forever, for like 2,000 years. But plague was not in, understood in this theory. They didn't really know what to do with plague. So they, they sort of went all over the place. And they came up with this, the University of Paris, which was the most authoritative medical school in the Middle Ages, the doctors at the University of Paris, who are theorists. They're not practitioners. They didn't go out and like look at patients. They just came up with theory. And they uh, diagnosed the plague as happening because of a particular constellation of heavenly bodies in the sky that released this miasma. So it's, it's kind of something external. So this is kind of interesting because in the long run, this idea that there are external entities that can attack our health and not everything in our health is relating to our internal imbalance. It, that's very important. Okay, in the long run, but you know they don't quite know how to integrate that in the in the in the medieval period in the early modern period. But that kind of gets to what you were saying about them not being so simple, because it still eventually leads them to bigger does, ideas. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it just takes a long time. It takes a long time. Like if we were ported back there and grew up within that society, we wouldn't just come up with germ theory, right? Like you know. No, Actually, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's what really holds back any kind of really medical breakthroughs. They don't have germ theory until the 19th century. So, so they if, if you don't have germ theory, you're kind of lost. And and they were they were lost in that sense. But they're getting there. <laughs> I think this external thing is important in that sense. Yeah. So now, is there is there anything else that you want to talk about about? plague or the black death before we end the program i don't want to miss anything no, um no i think we um you know it's the, i think in general terms we have had a, a nice wide-ranging discussion and i got in my um, pet peeves about the images because i would really like people to be more critical about images because uh, they are they're crazy and I just don't understand what's going on with that um, I mean I think you know if people are interested you really really have to dive into each particular pandemic you know you have to do 1666 you have to do 1625 you have to do 1603 I mean really every generation Okay, after the Black Death in the 14th century, you're going to have major outbreaks, not all over Europe, but regional outbreaks like every 20 years or so. Okay. okay. So it's something that people learn to live with. Okay. The Black Death is like an extreme, shocking, dislocating thing, just like this is for us. But over time, so think of the coronavirus never really going away. Okay. It's always there. And you have to adjust to it. And that's what plague was. It just kind of kept coming back. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So, so that's the adjustment is what I'm interested in. I mean, I'm working on a later period now, and I'm trying to say, and you know, I'm, when I when I read uh, medical doctors' treatises in, like, say, the 16th century, the 17th century, I want to say, look, you guys, 
come on, you can't be sticking to these same old ideas, you know, move on, move on. <laughs> and they're starting to, you know, integrate new things, but it's just taking them a long time. But I just think about, think about a, 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 just a constant, I think we use the word endemic. It's just part of society. Um, I don't know if that's what's going to happen with this particular virus, that we're always going to be uh, a cautionary about it. I mean, we always have flu, don't we? I mean, we have flu all the time. Yeah, flu is all. I, th- yeah. I think. I think the. I think really it's the lack of of information. Like we know the flu, but this one we don't yeah. really know the full parameters of it. So right. I imagine right. within the next few years, our response to it will adapt as needed. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. You're right, and. Uh, so this is like the Black Death, and then you know we go through two hundred years. Of- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's coronavirus. <laughs> well, well, to occupy that time, what what books would you direct people towards? Because I've been thinking about, hey, I want to read like a solid history of the Black Death or of plague or pandemics. And one problem that I have now that I'm not in school anymore is. I go online, I go to Amazon, and I'm overwhelmed by the choices. So much, yeah. Know. Well, I think there are, there are several good books out there that I would suggest, and I think they're readable as well as being scholarly. I, I love the, um, the historian Ole Benedictow, B-E-N-E-D-I-C-T-O-W. He's written a, a very general across your history of the plague. My, um, my dissertation director, Sam Cohn, is... That's C-O-H-N. It's still the expert. He has many books out about the Black Death. Is there one that you would recommend? Is they're there... all good. No, they're all good. And, he's, he gets, and, he, and he gets really into the more conflicting historiography. Okay. My, fav, my favorite book for more of a social history, the one that I assign in, in class, because I'm mostly an English historian, is called King Death, and it's by Colin Platt, P-L-A-T-T. And he is a um, both historian and archaeologist. So he's gone on some of these digs and understood, you know, the sort of remains and how they dealt with death and the social practices of death. It's much more of a social history. And it's a very nice kind of, it's not too long and it's really good. So that's King Death by Colin Platt. I would recommend that one. And, and just for our audience, when you say social history, could you just explain what that means so people know? Well, socialism, how does this affect society? How does it affect relationships between human beings? How does it affect what people ate, what how people lived? Um, you know, customs, social customs. I mean, we've seen change. Just like we're seeing customs change here, I think that will be interesting to see how our customs might change. Like I, the other day I was... Um, I was, I don't know who, some radio show, and they were talking about, well, I think we should do away with the handshake. And I thought, when did we start shaking hands anyway, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Did they do that back then? And, you know, know, so that sort of thing. Colin Platt's book is really good on that, like all the different practices that that came about. And it's called King Death, that one? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. I'd start with that. It's just England, though. But, you know, sometimes you need kind of a really kind of focused look to get it, and then you can go a little bit broader. Okay, yeah. I always like micro-history books, so anything that's really zoned in just is easy for me to manage. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of bad books out there. For the general rule, anytime, I will say this to all your listeners, anytime you see anyone referring to the plague as the black plague, forget it. Go away. Okay. Away. okay? <laughs> 
we don't use that term. That's silly. <laughs> That's not, it's not an academic term. It's not a term that any medical store would ever use. Any other red flags? In the title, you see anything related to that book, just go away. Keep going. All right. <laughs> any other red flags for? No, that's pretty much. <laughs> okay. All the images. You know, beware of those images. Those okay. are really bad. <laughs> so, well, thank you for coming on, and, uh, sure. and you know, this is, I know I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, and too. you know, Good to see you again. You too. It's been we, we uh, Professor Seeger and I haven't seen each other since I was a student, or I think a couple of years after I went back to do something for a paper that I was working for, but, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. but, uh, but yeah, so, 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 so we'll end it here. And, and, you know, uh, and again, the, the name of the book that was King death by, what was the name of the, the writer? Colin Platt. Colin Platt. So go check out King death and the other books she recommended. I still have my cores and Peter's book. So her, her <laughs> book recommendations are very good. Uh, and until, okay. all right. And until then, we'll talk to you later. Okay, have fun, Brandon.